You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm your host, Darren Bresnitz. Thank you for joining us today as we head up north from L.A. to San Francisco to chat with Artie Shetty and Chris Blydhorn, the couple and owners behind Birdsong and Bird Box. We talk about how they met, their road to opening their first restaurant, and their viral hit during the pandemic, Claw the Claw, one of the most incredible fried chickens you've ever seen on the internet and in real life. It's a great conversation, a lot of great insights, and a very, very delicious insight into how to start and pivot when you have restaurants. And then we dig into the archives going all the way back to 2016 to have Michael Davis, who was on to talk about his two albums set, Orchids and Violence, which came out on Nonsense Records. He shares a lot of great stories and a stripped down, beautiful performance. It's a great show. Hope you enjoy it on a Sunday or whenever you're listening to Snacky Tunes here on Heritage Radio Network.
sound. Artie and Chris, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me. Really appreciate it. Cool. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Excited. Uh, before we dig in, how are you faring after the storms? I know it's the North got hit pretty hard and San Francisco was no exception. <laughs> There's been some surprises, but um, we're, <laughs> I think we got under control now, so. Yeah. We kind of escaped it a little bit. We were in Yosemite for the first week of January, mm. uh, just staying low. So, yeah. Yeah. I know a, a few friends who um, knew they had some holes in roofs, but didn't understand how holes like that could allow so much damage inside their places of business. Yeah. We came back to some, you know, fun surprises. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's rare these days to have a husband and a wife team as co-owners. And before we get into how you became business partners, how did you two meet? Where did you first um, cross paths? We met at Bennu, which is Mm -hmm. a restaurant here, um, obviously, but this is 12 years ago or Mm. 11 years ago. Chris was a sous chef and I was a wannabe cook. (laughs) (laughs) and um you know it's one thing i think to have a relationship evolve and it's another thing to go into business together and to have a similar idea how did that evolve over time did you guys like the way each other worked or did you guys like the way that you two got along how did your partnership build i mean i think we had the we had the same type of, you know, drive and focus, you know, towards a goal, I guess. Um, you know, whether we get along all the time and things like that's always like up and down, especially when, especially when it comes to like heated moments in, in the restaurant. But we both do very different things as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and surely they, they do kind of collide every once in a while. But, you know, our tasks are very different. Um, so uh, and we, we you know. She's very good at, at her tasks and I'm pretty good at mine. So, um, you know, uh, every once in a while there's, you know, suggestions, of, oh, maybe we should do that. And, you know, and conversations become more fun, but, uh, you know, we get along pretty well. And, and given like the hundreds of tasks in the restaurant, it's like, we're yeah. always, you know, busy, always fixing a problem in restaurants, you know? Now, I uh, know, Chris, that you've cooked in quite a few restaurants. How did you go from moving around, cooking, to deciding to eventually open up your own spot? And in the same vein, I know a lot of times when people who become partners in a restaurant meet in one restaurant, not to besmirch Benu, but they're like, okay, we like some of these things, but we want to do something different. How did you sort of marry the idea to do your own thing and knew when it was time to do that? Well, um, I lived in San Diego most of my career, 
Mm-hmm. And I just, I love the town down there. So I never left. So I was working there for eight years for one chef, uh, content, happy, you know, and, and then I was always ambitious, you know, in the kitchen. And mm. I always, um, you know, I, you know, I was always like trying to do something else. Whereas people around me would sort of just, you know, do their jobs or, you, you know, get the task done. Of course, of course. To, you know, problem solve, make new problems, make new dishes. And, <laughs> and then finally it came to, you know, a time where, and, and this is like when uh, the economy had its first crash, you, you know, back in mm-hmm. 08, 2008 or so. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. It came to a point where I've been there for eight years um mass layoffs were happening restaurants like dead again cheeseburger Uh, city everywhere yeah and (laughs) it could have been like one of those things that do i stay in san diego and kind of you know stay in the same pace or or should i you know give it a shot try to work somewhere else and and Mm. i've had you know this thought that like it you know you you can uh, either be pushing yourself and you're doing better uh, or if, if you're, you know, not pushing yourself and you're just, you know, plateauing and you're, you're staying on an even plane, you know, you're always getting worse and, you know, I, yeah. I never want to get worse. So even though we, you know, my skills weren't like going down, I was still like, I was, I was in a place where I felt like it was comfortable. Yeah. It's comfortable. And yeah. Comfortable. Yep. Um, and this is like when Twitter was first starting to get popular and, you know, Grand Ackett's put an ad on Twitter, you know, looking for cooks. I applied like 20 times. Uh, I finally Just slid got, into those DMs. Hey, yeah, man, what's up? This is the time where you had to apply, you know, 20 to 30 times to get a job. Whereas like now, you know, we'll just take anybody. Yeah, it's uh, the labor market's a little different. Oh, man. Yeah. So I applied probably 20 to 30 times, you know, sending an email over and over and over again. And I finally got a stage. So. Stopped everything, flew over there, got the job, and then moved to Chicago a couple months later. Wow. But San Francisco pulled you back, didn't it? I mean, I always liked I, California. I mean, and, California, right, because you were in San Diego. But San Francisco called you. Yeah. In a, when I lived in San Diego, we would come up here to like yes. check out restaurants. Because at that time, San Diego food was was pretty crappy, except for tacos. You know? Sure. Tacos amazing there. Um, and now it's a lot better. But I always wanted to open a restaurant there. We would look to San Francisco. Mm. Not even LA. LA was pretty bad at the time too. Yeah, I mean San Francisco. When I was in New York, was that was the versus city? I guess if you want to get into that weird, I remember, um, you know, it was like San Francisco versus New York. Yeah. So that it had the reputation of uh, of like the be all end all city on the West Coast. Exactly. French Laundry was, you know, very popular, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, like in its prime then. So we would always go up north and just like eat at restaurants and, you know, check out the scene. And and then, and you know, Chicago was doing very well. A bunch yeah. Of modern food was really taken off. So Blackbird and Schwa and all those places. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, and then, I, you know, Grand Ackett's obviously was doing crazy things. Well, yeah. Like I needed to work there. So I just... You know, I, in my mind, I, I knew I had to work there. So I made sure I did. Um, and then I didn't want to stay in Chicago. Um, <laughs> Those winters. I, yeah. I mean, I'm from Boston. So. Oh, okay. I went from Boston to San Diego and I didn't want to go back to the East coast. So 
Uh, and then I knew, you know, Chef Boston Corey, wasn't great at the time either for restaurants. Still there was like, like oh yeah, and like one or two other places, but there wasn't yeah. much. And it's just those. It's still only those like two places. There's a couple. I was recently there last year, and I was like, there's Sarma. I was surprised. I was like, okay, Boston, you could do a full weekend of eating there and been like, oh, I'm, be I'm oh cool. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll send you a list once we get off. I'll I'll, I'll let yeah. you know. <laughs> we don't go out there very often anymore. Yeah. No. No, but so then San Francisco called you. Yeah, because come. Chef Corey was opening a restaurant, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, I just, you know, when I was young, I used to just like watch YouTube videos of him speaking, how he thought about food, um, you know, just like, you know, very professional and, and and really focused on you know, a common goal, which is just creating good food, clean. Uh, but he but he smoked, you know, more intellectual about food than most chefs. Mm. Uh, and and I was like, I, I, I need to go work there. Yeah. Now, Artie, you said that you were trying your hand at cooking and, you know, not that there was like, especially during those times in 2000s, like front of house or back of house, I feel like it was all sort of at the same level of respect unless you were like the grants of the world. But what made you decide that there could be another role for you in the restaurant world? What made you decide to look at a different aspect of the industry? So I was never in the restaurant world. I'm a biomedical engineer, um, and that's my background. (laughs) I work in the med device world even now. Um, But I always had a special interest Mm. in cooking uh, when I was young. Uh, Came from a very traditional Indian family. Uh, Being a chef was not an option. Mm -mm. I pursued my sciencey path. Sure, sure, sure. But um, at some point when I was talking to a colleague at work and I was like, you know, one day I'll open a restaurant and he made a comment, do you even know what it takes to open a restaurant? This is me in my early 20s. And um, I had a job in med device consulting where I traveled a lot. Uh, but I just showed up at a restaurant. This is in mm. Texas in San Antonio. And I said, can I, can I observe? Can I cook? And they're like, do you cook? And I'm like, no, never cooked. This is just, you know, naive. I read somewhere recently and I shared it with Chris. Uh, when you don't know anything is when you are most confident. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's what it was. You know, it was so naive that I was confident enough to show up. I wouldn't do that now. Um, but they let me. And long story short is San Antonio obviously reaches its peak in terms of the chefs you can learn from. Sure. But I cooked every weekend at these restaurants. Mm. And a chef there said, you know what, you need to branch out. Um, let me connect you to Daniel Patterson um, at Qua. You should take a couple of weeks off and go stage there. I did that, stage for a month at Qua. And that's when Corey was mm-hmm. opening Bennu. Mm-hmm. So my sister was like, let me treat you to Bennu. You followed Corey. Mm-hmm. So we went and ate at Bennu the first month. And I spoke to Corey that night and said, hey, can I come here next year and stage? Um, because I could take only, you know, a couple of weeks off yeah, of work. Yeah, yeah. So I did that in 2011. And that's when I met Chris there. And I staged at Bennu for like two years every weekend. And then I went on to become the director of operations there. Wow. You know, it's so interesting to talk about that time and era of dining 
because obviously post-pandemic things have changed, but even pre-pandemic, I feel like with Instagram and social media, it's like, oh, I can go to a restaurant without going. And I, and I know how that sounds. It's like you can sort of get an experience of a place. But back then it was so much like if I want to see what's going on and to even have my mind blown and and walk in a little bit blind, which is probably what I'm getting at. The idea of walking into a place and not – I know all eight courses. I know the secret courses. It was It was that moment where like I physically have to go there to really experience it and you both – were that in different cities. Yep. Um, how did that shape your mindset of being able to experience a cook and work in the restaurant into that time as you started working your way to opening up Birdsong? A lot. I feel that I'm glad for those years where I was able to spend time in kitchens. I, I have so much respect for mm. anyone who works in the kitchen. Now, I'm not even saying, you know, the Chris Lightons and the Corey Lees. I'm not talking about that genre mm-hmm. of chefs either. I'm talking about anybody who can work in a kitchen and can do that work. I have so much respect. And I feel that as a business owner, it helps you think about those people every day, right? Like a lot of decisions that you make sometimes, if you've not seen that, and I'm not stereotyping here, of course, everybody has a different lens, but when you're not, when you've not seen that in restaurants and not experienced that, I feel it's very difficult to kind of mm-hmm. make certain decisions. Mm. Uh, and I'm glad I was able to spend some time in the kitchens. Well, listen, I want to take a quick musical break because I want to get into the opening, the actual opening of Bird Song, um, and then your eventual pandemic pivot to Bird Box. But we have a song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. Yes. 
Hello and welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are here with Artie, Shetty, and Chris Blydarn of Birdsong and Bird Box in San Francisco. And Artie, before the break, you said before starting anything and knowing anything about anything is when you have the most confidence. Well, you two were deep into the restaurant industry before you decided to open up your first spot. <laughs> so knowing where all the bodies are buried as best you can in a place that is now your own in the restaurant industry, what made you want to open up your own restaurant, Birdsong, in 2018, especially a fine dining spot? We just love restaurants. We, <laughs> we still feel the same, uh, you know, magic and mm -hmm. passion for food and dining and this industry, just that, just the way we did in our early 20s and were mm. following chefs and all of that. Um, when Chris and I met, I mean, the story goes, by the second date, we were building our business plan. So it was always something that mm. we wanted to do. So it was mm -hmm. not, we didn't even think of like, it was a natural progression for us. I mean, we were very naive about it at first too, just because you have all this, <laughs> that's the thing, you have all this experience in restaurants and you could work at all these great restaurants, even, you know, Michelin star, after Michelin star, go to Europe. Uh, and, and you're a young cook in there and you're excited and you're learning and like you think you're the best and you're working with the best. You still don't until like you really start putting together numbers and mm. like, seeing things on paper. Like you just don't know how impossible restaurants are, you, you, you know, like and how impossible they can be unless, you know, you you have you need more than just a chef, I think is what I'm saying. If it was just me, like. Birdsong would be gone for sure. I would have spent all the money on like fancy kitchen tools and things like that. You know? Sure. Like, More microgreens than you can shake a stick at, right? Yeah. Like uh, we'd, <laughs> everything would be at the farmer's market by now, you know? It'd be, yeah. You just, you know, you need, you need someone else to like, because um, I'm always just in full, you know, I got the pedal to the metal. I'm always. Yeah. Just, yeah. yeah. I see new things and I want it, you know, I, I need someone to, you know, put the brakes on for a little bit. Sometimes you need someone to tell you that it will still be great and this doesn't matter in the way that you think it does. And then yeah. you go, oh, okay. And even if you don't believe it, then you got to trust them too. You're like, all right, all right, all right, I'll trust you. And exactly. It's, it's not about even about someone telling you, it's just about someone watching. Mm. Because when you're in the kitchen... Uh, there's probably like five things going wrong at all times, you know, by five different people. And, you know, you just get, you just get focused on other things. And and then, you know, important things kind of, you know, go right by you. So you just need someone else to watch it. You really need to have a team. Now, I'm, I've read that you, you have this great analogy about the way that bird song runs, the way like a song or an orchestra does. How does that work together with essentially two conductors? How do you see the flow of of the restaurant being so melodic? So, I mean, when we expedite Birdsong, it actually really is like a conductor. The expediter is right in the dining room, mm -hmm. right in the middle, and then the back the back of the expediter is sort of faced towards the dining room, just mm -hmm. as if mm -hmm. you're gonna, you know watch a symphony. And then to the left and the right, you know, there's guests. Uh, and then facing that expediter is the other chef that's like running the running the uh, running the the kitchen. 
So, you know, basically you have a stove on one side and there's an expediter on one side of the stove. And then there's like the main kitchen contact on the other. And they're just looking at each other the whole time. And then on left and right side is like when all this work gets done, mm. you know, the right side will be cold stuff. The left side will be hot. And then that's all happening to the left and right of us. Uh, and then it just gets, you know, pushed forward. So it's, it's, it's hard to explain without a visual, but. No, no, I, you, yeah. you paint a good picture. I got it. I can see it. Um, it's a, when you hit that rhythm, when, when it all falling into place, I mean, it's, it's addictive in some ways to, to be in that flow. And I, I can understand why you two keep coming back to it. And instead of playing someone else's songs, wanting to create your own. Yeah. I mean, when nights are going great. Yeah. When, when you have a busy <laughs> night and it goes great, like there's, you know, there's, that is a very memorable, you know, evening for everybody, the cooks, you know, us, the guests, you can just tell that, you know, yeah. there's an energy that is very, very special. We live for that in a way, you know, that's Oh my what, gosh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, what bird song unique is that like that kitchen is in the dining. There's only one room, so there's no wall. Mm. Us. Guests are five, about just about five feet from the, the chefs. Oh yeah. So they really feel what we're feeling. Mm, on good nights and bad, right? Good nights and bad, yeah. <laughs> it's a so, good energy. It's kind of like you're feeding off each other, you know? Like you can yeah. feel there's like some – when the guests have a certain energy, we feed off that energy and vice versa. So it's a very um, – it, it, it's, it's a really good rhythm. I, I love it. Now – you alluded to surviving the industry during the first economic downturn in 2008, 2009, but you didn't have your own spot, which was different when the pandemic hit in 2020. Yeah, you, I thought we were past those, those days. Yeah, are we? I don't know. We could talk about that in a little bit, but you, you know, it's rare because we actually don't always have people who have a viral hit dish because most people who have a viral hit dish also don't have a fine dining restaurant, but you, you, I don't want to say stumbled, but you created this incredible fried chicken called Claude the Claw, which was, I feel like everywhere, which was the fried chicken sandwich, which the actual claw on, but it really did have this big sustainability message tied into it, which whole bird beak to beak to feathers, beak to tail, whatever you want to call it. But I'd love to know what it was like to one, go through that moment of having to, to pivot from fine dining but then two, to actually be on the other end of a viral hit. What was it like to, to see that creation everywhere, to be on the news, to be in every Instagram post, to see people make, you know, homages to that dish? I mean, let me first start by saying when first when the pandemic hit and we closed, yeah. I, I distinctly remember this because we come home and we have all these texts from friends that, oh, like, are you going to figure out a way to box these courses and whatever and <laughs> do that? And then Chris was like, we're just going to wait this out because, you know, we all were like, oh, we'll yeah, be we'll be back to normal life in two weeks. Right. And he specifically said, yeah, I'm not going to do anything. We're not going to make we're not going to take out. Right. This person who's been working, you know, 16, 17 hours daily for years now, next day wakes up and says, I'm going to go and see what we're going to do. <laughs> <laughs> go to the restaurant, sees all these beautiful chickens hanging because mm. we use those really nice chickens yep. for a box at Bird Song. 
And that's how the chicken happened. So I think, you know, on this side of it all, it was like, we don't know what we're doing. And we just did this chicken sandwich. But then I'll let you talk to the other side of it. Yeah. So, I mean, at Birdsong, we don't serve chicken, but we go through a ridiculous amount of chicken. Explain. So, Can you just quickly explain? We make sauces every mm-hmm. single day. So it's not like big batches or stocks and things like that. Uh, you know, we will use the whole bird of a chicken to create, you know, bouillons and mm. base teas and broths. And we'll use the bones, we'll use the marrow, and we'll use the feet. All those are, are very important, you know, for anything liquid at Birdsong. So sure. at any given time, we usually have about, you know, 40 to 50 whole chickens hanging uh, in, mm. in, in our dry age. So we have a, unlike... What makes us kind of unique is that we built a whole dry age specifically just for meat. So mm. like big butchering program at Birdsong. Uh, so we'll just buy whole birds, big, big pieces, you know, half hogs, whole hogs. And then we'll kind of do all the butchering. That way we can allow them to like hang and uh, so we get more time on them and develop flavor and age and things like that. So we always have these birds and then every single day to run Birdsong, it takes about seven and a half chickens a day. Um, hmm. every single day they get cut up, the bones get uh, smashed in half, uh, to expose the marrow, the feet get cut off. Um, you know, some go in bouillon, some go in broths and some hmm. go in sauces and they all get dispersed and, and hand roasted over fire. So when we went, all of a sudden we closed, you know, we had, we had, I don't know, like 10 cases of chicken in there. And I was like, well, first thing we have to do is get rid of this. So, and mm-hmm. fried, that's a was an easy, was an easy thing. We all love fried chicken. I love making fried chicken. And, um, mm. and I wanted to like, no intention ever to open a restaurant on fried chicken, by the way. Uh, but I wanted, yeah, I, w- I just wanted to know how to make amazing fried chicken. So we first did it on cast iron and we're like, yeah, this is not going to work. Um, <laughs> so then we, we had birdsong loaded with pots, you know, a fried chicken. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we have all the feet there. And we were just playing around with butchering. I'm like, what, what if we just serve, you know, a fried chicken sandwich with the foot on? You know, it'll it'll help us during the pandemic. You know, it will create some excitement. Not thinking, you know, not yeah. thinking within just like initial excitement. We can get through these chickens because that's all I was concerned about: selling the chickens and then figuring out what we're going to do next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then it just kind of like got crazy. <laughs> it, it just that's an understatement. Yeah. Yeah, it just really went from zero to a hundred and. We were serving a lot of them. Uh, and then it kind of slowed down a little bit. And sure. we went to, like getting rid of some of our other inventory, doing, you know, like small little tasting menus to get rid of all the lamb and duck yeah, we yeah. had. Uh, and then we were serving, you know, chickens at the same time. And then it, you know, it made, it went on the news and on TV and stuff like that. But really what happened there was also when we were selling those chicken sandwiches with feet and that now we sell a chicken breast sandwich as, as well. But at that time we were only selling the, the clod, right? Yeah. 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 Clod later. Um, but we did have so many customers tell us, Oh, can you cut off the leg, cut off the feet? And Chris would always say, no, we're not cutting the feet. Love it. And, yeah, no. and, and then slowly that con, you know, we, we spoke, yeah. we spoke to the team and it kind of became this thing that, in the restaurant world, the feet doesn't freak us out. I'm from India. I grew up, you know, I used to go with my dad to pick the chicken. that sure. gonna, You know, so I've seen it. The feet didn't scare me. And same with other people who grew up in other countries. But I think in America, we're so used to 
the supermarket chicken. Yeah. Kind of was like, oh, this is a moment like to really maybe make a point that the reason, wh- what is the reason that you've, you've not seen a chicken feed, you know, and making them less afraid of that chicken feed. So we continued like entire pandemic. We didn't sell a, a chicken without the chicken feed. That's great. I mean, I feel like it's sort of America and only other handful of countries that aren't used to the foot. Yeah. When it comes to the chicken. Mm-hmm. So now that we're back to relative new normal of restaurants and and Birdsong has reopened, you've also opened Bird Box to focus on fried chicken and you're using all the parts and things like that. How do the restaurants work together? Are they completely separate entities? How are they t- two places, one fine dining, one fast casual, can we say? How are they talking to each other? <clears throat> I mean, they, they they talk to each other in terms of you know, it's flavor first. Both mm. of them, similarities, certainly flavor first. And, uh, and that goes with you know, how we source our ingredients. So chickens are important there. Uh, for the most part, we're, you know, we get the same chickens we'll get at Bird Box as we do at Bird Song. We actually get better chickens at Bird Box than we get at Bird Song. Um, mm. Mostly all, you know, pasture raised at Bird Box. Where at Bird Song, it, it, they're not so much pasture raised, they're just organic. Right. But so, different, di- I mean, different uses. Different uses as well. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, in that way, they speak the same language. But in terms of kind of everything else, you know, Bird Box, I, I, I can't even say louder because Birdsong has a pretty chill vibe as well. But, you know, it's just come in with your family, you know, kind of, you know, you'll be licking your fingers a lot, you know, mm. eat you know, still like same vibe, but, you know, just... One of those things you just come in when you have a you know a half hour of time or lunch. Where at Birdsong, it's um you know you know it's excitement. You lead up to it. You make a reservation. You know you're waiting all week type thing. Yeah, you know the last few weeks has had a lot of conversations about the future of fine dining and its sustainability and so much hand wringing and you know things like that. And now that you have two restaurants on both sides of the spectrum. Any thoughts about the fine dining world and the future of it? Or is it just uh, these are the the media headlines and the food we'll, we'll be reading this week and then in two weeks, fine dining is back in here to stay? I think it's a hot topic that, you know, everybody, not just media, I feel like even within the industry, yeah. we all talk and explore that thought. I mean, I'll give my take here. I I feel that fine dining is here to stay. Mm -hmm. Like you can see that even from the labor perspective, Mm -hmm. you know, we all read the the shortages and all that. But from a fine dining perspective, it is coming back. Like we are being able, I'm talking more from the back of house perspective here. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, Front of house is still a challenge from, you know, both ends of the spectrum. Uh, but back of house, you see like the cooks coming back into the fine dining bo- world, but not so much into that casual world, you know? So I think mm. the magic that I mentioned or this desire to create this, you know, artful, thoughtful food, I think that still exists 
And that makes me feel that there is hope for fine dining Mm. to continue if I think the chefs and the restaurateurs and the operators can figure out an efficient model to do so, you know, because the cost of food has risen, but there's only so much, you know, there's so much willingness to pay. So I feel like somewhere something needs to shift. Um, Cities like San Francisco and New York, where there is a lot of wealth, I feel that we didn't feel the pinch so much. Like people came back. Um, When I say people, I mean our guests came back after the pandemic and, you know, but Maybe I'm just wishful thinking, but I think fine dining is here to stay. I mean, I think so, too. I mean, there's there's really two types of restaurants for me. Um, There's a fine dining restaurant and a fast casual restaurant that's owned, operated, designed uh, by a chef. And then there's, you know, fast casual and in um in fast food that's owned and operated you know by by a business person yeah and corporation those yeah. Two, you know when you you put a line between those two categories the restaurants are very different you know you can see the similarities between uh you know both categories of restaurants meaning like fast casual and fine dining if it's owned by a chef because i mean for us we put in so much it's not just about the food for birdsong there's the design how it mm-hmm. feels in the, in the plates mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh, when we open this chicken restaurant, we won't have to put so much energy on this. This will be this will be kind of easy. But then we found ourselves just like just because we weren't like I wasn't talking to an uh, an artist, you know, developing ceramics for for our food. You know, <laughs> we we put in so much time for like, what are the boxes going to look like? Yeah, How's yeah, it? yeah, 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 yeah. It was just as much time as we spent on paper, you mm. know, vessels as we do on ceramic ones. So I, you know, and I I just think a chef and you know, in a, in a real true restaurateur, uh, they just can't get away from that, you know, whereas on the other side, it's just, you know, just pick, oh, that, that will work. And you can notice the difference. And, oh. and those people are going to continue to open restaurants and they're going to want to be ambitious and they're going to want to open up a fine dining restaurant. And maybe that fine dining restaurant will even change more so what it is today, tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I mean, which from white tablecloths to no tablecloths to like, Right. To piano to, you know, we play like Jimmy Buffett in our dining room sometimes, you know. Sure. uh, You know, who knows what it's going to be like in 10 years, but there's still going to be a fine dining and there's still going to be a lot of thought and and intention behind it. So awesome. Well, Artie and Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us. If people want to check out Birdsong and Bird Box, where can they go? You mean, how do they check it out? Like on websites? Websites, online, Instagram, right. Facebook. Yeah. I don't know if you All get it. So we have a website for both. Just yeah. look up Song SF or Bird Box SF. We have Instagram pages uh, as well. Very well managed by our dear Zoe Wong, who has some good content. They're coming. very nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then show up anytime at Bird Box. We're open five days a week. No reservations. Um, and bird song, look for reservations on our website. Yeah, amazing. How far out should I plan it for for bird song if I want to get lucky? 
You just reach out to us. We'll yeah. make things okay. happen. Okay. I'm, I'm standing in as an avatar for the listeners. Like a couple <laughs> weeks, a month. What are we talking about here? On the, on the weekends, um, maybe plan 30 days ahead. That's when we release it and weekends yeah. book out. Weekdays, you know, there are cancellations and all of that. Sure. So even a week out is fine. Yeah. But Beautiful. if you want that 7 o'clock on a Friday or Saturday... You know, 30, hey, days out. thirty days I, out. I tell people to plan. I always plan. I if if I can if I can, I'll just hop online and make a reservation instead of having to annoy a chef or an owner on a on a busy yeah. busy night. Well, listen. Thank you so much. Big shout out to Parker for helping set up this interview. We have a song from the archives and then a live performance here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network.
This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. All right. Michael and crew, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Hey there. Uh, you want to go around the room and introduce yourselves? Sure, absolutely. Here we got uh, uh, on the mandolin we have we got Dominic Leslie and uh, Jen Larson. She's going to be uh, singing here with me. And on the bass, Larry Cook. Uh, welcome. From across the room. I mean, across the trailer. Um, I'm so excited you're here because the record you just put out is such an amazing concept that, like, I think people kind of, like, dream about that an artist would do, but you actually did it. Um, for those of you who don't know, it's called Orchids and Violence on Nonesuch, which is equally just, like, one of the best labels that's ever existed in the history uh, of labels. I, I agree, yeah. Um, just if you are, are into, like, music that is just good across all type of genres, just, like, just go listen to everything they've ever, ever done. Yeah, they've they've got a pretty amazing output over the last uh, you know fifty years or so. It's it's pretty inc- it's pretty incredible. Um, but what you've done, and just to, to, for the people who um, are not prepared for this episode, um, you took pretty much the same song and did it twice. Yeah, it's the same twelve songs. I started with twelve uh, mostly traditional songs, or you know like old time and bluegrass and you know old murder ballads and whatnot. And uh, I did the same track list on two discs. Uh, so the first disc is like straight ahead bluegrass, which is pretty much what we're going to be playing today. And then, and the uh, the second disc, I did the same songs in the same order, but it's kind of an experimental electric album. So I reinterpreted them kind of from the ground up in some cases. And I'm sure that you'll probably get this question asked you through all the interviews. But like, where did this come from, and, and why <laughs> did you feel the desire to do this? Well, I. You know, um, I came out of bluegrass music. My, that's something I grew up with. So, it, it, my parents played fiddle and banjo, so it was in the household growing up, and and uh, so you know, it's always just been a part of of you know, who I am as you know personally and, and musically, and, and something I've I've really gravitated back to, in the, especially in the last ten years of my life, or so. I just really end up doing primarily bluegrass music, but um, you know, along the way, it definitely gotten way into other forms of music, you know, experimental music, jazz, noise rock, mm-hmm. um, you know, all these, uh, you know, different influences are, are also part of me. And, uh, so when I, I wanted to record an album and it was trying to figure out what sort of album I wanted to do. And I, I knew I wanted to do something that really kind of hung together as a piece. You know, I didn't want to just kind of record a collection of tunes and kind of have it be a bunch of singles. So, uh, and I didn't want to do sort of a mishmash of, of too many influences. I wanted it to be kind of about one thing. But then I couldn't really figure out what, you know, whether whether to <laughs> kind of do the traditional bluegrass thing, which has really been a big part of, you know, what I've done in the last 10 years, or or express some of these kind of more um, experimental ideas. And so this was a solution 
this double album concept was was kind of someone called a solution. <laughs> <laughs> someone called like masochistic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it was an opportunity to take these old songs, which you know, many of which have been around for for hundreds of years. Uh, who knows how long? Some of these old murder ballads are you know, really hundreds of years old, and have had a lot of uh, life. You know, even before bluegrass music was a thing, and uh, you know, so they just you know they they get performed in in the the style of of whoever's performing them you know whether it's you know 1750 or 1900 or 1950 or or now and you know everyone just kind of brings their own um experience to it so uh, it's just kind of taking part of the process of you know people have for years you know, hundreds of years continually reworked these songs so just getting to explore them in you know, very much in the bluegrass tradition, uh, which, which you know, again, I, I love and uh, primarily work in. Um, you know, with a with a band of musicians that I just really wanted to get together in a room. But then also, find, yeah, take the same songs. That, sorry, do you find that every time you explore a song or re-explore it, it extends its life and gives it a new a new lease on it? Well, I believe that's that, that's what these songs are meant for. You know, this, these songs have been around for hundreds of years. You know, they're 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 enduring because they have a way of uh, they, they are sort of a template or a container for for the experience and the emotions of whoever's seeing them. And so, uh, you know, everyone who sings these songs is, is a folk tradition, and so everyone sort of brings their own perspective to it. And um, you know, these are uh, two musical perspectives that I was able to present on uh, <laughs> this on this recording. You know, uh, the bluegrass and the sort of more experimental side, which also gave me an opportunity to to, to kind of explore the contrasts uh, and versions and kind of the, the puzzle for me to solve. <laughs> which I think we definitely want to uh, address, but because you said it twice, um, murder ballads. Uh, what makes a good murder ballad for the uninitiated? <laughs> oh man, well there's so many murder ballads to choose from, and, and is that like a can? I mean, I, I, is that it's a this, canon? Yeah, music? it's a genre. Yeah, absolutely. There, there's there's a bunch of great ones. You know, uh, I recorded Pretty Polly. Uh, on this on these albums um you know the knoxville girl omi wise um you know banks of the ohio it goes goes on and on there are so many of them that are that are done to this day and uh they're all so brutal like what makes like a really good like a like a like a torch song like you know you hear a good torch and you're like damn that's really good they like they really love that person like what makes like a good murder ballad well, it's 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 you know it's got to be gruesome and brutal. I mean, I think people right. sort of need uh, that artistic engagement with with you know with death, with violence, with uh, brutality. Um, it, you know, we have that in uh, you know in in horror movies and action movies. You know, and it's, I think it's it's an, it's important for people to kind of get to engage in that in, in a song. You know, rather than in real life experience. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I just got threatened on the radio. You all heard this. Um, well, we- you know, that's why we have these songs. You, <laughs> yeah. know, is that, you know, so they have songs that just express you know all aspects of, of human experience and yeah. and um, you know, and so in these singing these songs and hearing these songs, you're, you're you feel this kind of pathos for the victim, and uh, you want the the perpetrator to be brought to justice. And, um, you know, one of my favorite ones, uh, Knoxville Girl, which was uh, most famously recorded by the Lubin Brothers. I mean, part of uh, is that they record that song in such a kind of upbeat, 
Manor. They're like, I met a little girl in Knoxville. This very song is kind of like upbeat and happy sounding, like they're they're at a party or something. But it's this gruesome, gruesome murder, and that sort of makes it all the more twisted. Right. That it's, you know, I've also there's a great recording of Nick Cave uh, singing Knoxville Girl, which is totally the other way. Oh, he's man. like, he seems way into it. Yeah. He's like, wish I was there. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, can we hear? Uh, what are you going to play for us first? Sure. Well, there's not a murder ballad. No. At okay. All. No. Actually, this is <laughs> after all this talk about old songs. We're actually going to uh, lead off with the song that I recorded. This this is the one song on the record that's not an old traditional number. It's actually by a, uh, a Seattle band called Mother Love Bone, who are they were oh, a, yeah. a proto grunge yeah. band who, who I really love. Yeah, they're wonderful. Yeah, they're awesome. Yeah, and they broke up. Some of their members went on to form Pearl Jam and, and other bands. Um, anyways, but I thought this would make a good bluegrass song. Okay. It's called Stargazer. Wonderful. Okay. Let's do it. <laughs> no murders. No murders. <laughs>
So what? When, when you were writing this, like, what came first, the the bluegrass song or the rock version? Um. Well, I mean, this. Uh, I'm sorry. When I was arranging it. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, yeah. well, I mean, more than that. Like, when you were putting the two kind of like records together, um, did, did you do all like all the bluegrass versions first, or did you do a bluegrass one and then you did the rock version of uh-huh. that? Like, how did that? How did that come yeah, to be? Well, well, the electric versions uh, kind of started out maybe about eight years ago. I, I had uh, kind of come up with a batch of arrangements. I was at the time playing drums uh, like and guitar and singing at the same time, mm. so sitting down, and my wife was playing bass. So we kind of arranged uh, you know, maybe about six or seven old bluegrass songs for that format. And those, that was sort of the seed of the electric record. And I, I knew mm. I want, you know, what direction I wanted to take that in for the recording uh, to some degree. And then... So uh, then, you know, I picked the, the, the songs that were going to go on each album. And since we, we, did, we recorded the Bluegrass record first. Mm-hmm. So those got mm-hmm. finished and, and arranged first. And then, of course, once that was set and I knew what that was going to sound like, then the, the ideas started, continued to evolve as far as how to arrange the electric stuff because it was, uh, you know, sort of a, a puzzle and a, a project of, uh, you know, kind of getting each album to flow differently and really have its own identity that would stand alone you know, without needing the other album, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, making sure each song, uh, you know, was 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 different, and you know, if you did listen to them side by side, there would be some interesting contrast there. Well, can you talk a little bit about the difference in the recording process for the two albums, uh, and just and your approach to each one? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The recording process was was really different for the for the bluegrass record. Uh, we did it all live in a big room uh, over three days. Uh, recorded a tape uh, in this in the old first uh, church in Brooklyn. With, um, they have an upper hall there, which is amazing sounding for acoustic music. And so we just did it with four microphones, uh, four tracks, and just you know got everyone there playing together, bleeding into the mics, and just kind of recording the sound of the room. So the kind of the concept was it was kind of a recorded event. Mm. You know, no. Uh, you know, we didn't really do any overdubs or edits, or we did a few edits, but you know, it's just, it was basically you know a live event. And, and, and then, for those who can't see in the room here, they're all just standing around one mic. This, like, I feel like we just went back to like how radio used to happen with yeah. you guys. This is like it's pretty amazing. Yeah, a lot of bluegrass uh, bands will perform, like the whole band will perform around a single condenser mic. You know, yeah, it's it's. it's inc- I feel blessed. It's yeah, cool. yeah, it's <laughs> we prefer it. Yeah. Um, anyways, but the electric record was done over about three months in my, uh, I did most of it in my home studio and, uh, you know, some of it in other rooms. And, um, I played most of the instruments, uh, myself. I had, uh, my wife, Jesse Carter played bass on it and, uh, we had a cameo in one song by, uh, Tony Trishka on the banjo, but everything else I just tracked myself. So it was, it was, you know, not at all done live. It was, you know, a layered studio creation. And that was kind of part of the, uh, Part of the um, concept there, you know, and kind of creating the contrast is to have the recording processes being very different. Uh, I mean, three days versus three months, you know, that's yeah, <laughs> a, bit, a bit of a difference. Um, I mean, and for people who who are listening to them side by side, I mean, you don't need to give away all the secrets, but is there like anything or any like particular pairing of tracks that you would point out that you like were were like happy or surprised by like how they sounded side by side? Well, uh, I would. Well, maybe it's a good time to bring up the vinyl release that just came out last week. Uh, the, the double CD, which came out at the end of February, is called Orchids and Violence. And then we just released a vinyl edition called Violence and Orchids. Um, and the, the difference is that it's just the vinyl edition is just one disc. And it takes five songs 
five each from the bluegrass and mm-hmm. the electric discs and then kind of interleaves them so you get the bluegrass oh, wow. version of june apple the electric version of june apple and it's and there's a whole sequence that's kind of designed to sort of highlight the contrast between the tracks so um i, I would encourage you to check that out and <laughs> decide for yourself <laughs> and, and which one is which which is the bluegrass and which is the the electric is it orcas which one's orcas which one's violence uh yeah i i, I, I won't uh Committed. The whole thing okay. is just called Orkins and Violence. Okay. You can you can think of that what you will. Maybe while we're like doing a murder ballad, I'll get you to tell me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, do you want to play another one for us? Sure. Um, I'm going to do a, a song while Larry on bass. We're going to give you a little break. You can uh, go have some whiskey and pizza. <laughs> but uh, Jen Larson and I are going to sing this as a duet and with Dominic on the mandolin. Um, recorded this one uh, on the record. I did as a duet with Sarah Jarose. Um, and it's written by uh, Whit Kana, who's... Uh, uh, he and his wife Barbara down in Atlanta are my musical godparents. Um, so I uh, send this out to, to Wit and Barbara. Um, what song called Dark Angel? It's not it's not a murder ballad, but there is death. We're getting there. Involved. Yeah, we're get, yeah, we're yeah. getting there. We're getting close. <laughs> yeah, we've got, we got three songs today. So um, it's called Dark Angel.
<laughs> so uh, records out, vinyls out. Yes, you had some release shows. Yes. What yep. comes this summer? Well, uh, actually, there's one more release show. We're having okay. a vinyl release show this Thursday in in Brooklyn uh, at Littlefield, which is in Gowanus on uh, DeGrasse Street, and uh, so that's going to feature both the electric band and the and the bluegrass. Band. I was going to ask, like, how how does the live? Obviously, we get the bluegrass, but how do the the live shows work? Uh, and yeah. how does like the set list work too? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, yeah, for the for the CD release shows we did in, in New York uh, back in March, yeah, it was the same as what we're doing this Thursday, which is the have the bluegrass band play in the first set and the electric band play in the second set. Mm. Um, for this this since this is the vinyl release show, each band is going to start out playing the five songs that are on the. Uh, the vinyl release. Oh wow! Um, so at the beginning of each set, you get to hear the, the the you know the contrasting versions of those songs. That's incredible. Um, and are, I mean, you're obviously doing double duty, but is anybody else uh, wearing two hats or just two bases? <laughs> well, uh, on this Thursday, on, on playing banjo with me is uh, Tony Trishka, who's you know legendary uh, banjo player. So really lucky to have him and. Uh, Tony is the only musician other than myself who played on both discs. Mm. He played on one song on each disc, and so he's gonna. We're gonna do that song, uh, "Darling Corey," which actually we're gonna close with today. But um, you'll hear Tony playing on the bluegrass and on the electric versions. But other than that, the, the band is different. Uh, so, and then um, are you taking? Are you able to take both out on the road, or do you have to to pick? <laughs> no, it's not really road. Um, Material there to, to, to travel with with two bands. Um, um, we're doing. I'm playing with the bluegrass band. We're doing Rocky Grass Festival out in Colorado. Oh, great bluegrass festival, and um, and I'm doing a trio tour in June, uh, June 9th, 10th, and 11th uh, with Noam Bikilny on banjo and Brittany Haas on fiddle, who both played on on the record. So that'll be the bluegrass sides. So we're playing. World Cafe in Philadelphia, uh, Cafe 939 in Boston, and the Parlor Room in Northampton, Mass. Um, so, yeah, that's going on the road. And the electric band, which uh, is now called Wax Lion, um, we're doing uh, we're doing mostly uh, New York shows, um, and that's with uh, Jesse Carter on bass and um, Kid Millions on drums, who oh, really? plays uh, yeah in, oh. in Oneida and with oh, uh, yeah. Laurie Anderson and many other. Uh, musicians, uh, he's he's incredible, and so it's been a total joy working with them. If I if I had known him, I, I would have gotten him to play on the record. <laughs> I actually I actually uh, played drums myself on the record, and uh, and then uh, started working with uh, with with Kid Millions on you know further release shows, and and that uh, it's hopefully gonna kind of uh, be an ongoing uh, project um, under the under the name Wax Lion. Uh, well, before we we have one more song. Uh, kind of final question is from really diving in and approaching these songs in like two very different ways did it give you like any deeper appreciation either for the way the songs are constructed or the subject of the songs themselves well you know know, these songs are very malleable and you know to me it's like it's a way of honoring the songs you know to 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 show that they work in, in different ways um you know, some bluegrass purists might be offended that I'm adding, you know, fuzz pedals and a bunch of weird stuff in the, on the second record. But I would argue that it's it's actually, you know, it's it's out of deep respect of the songs and of the tradition of these songs, you know, to do them two ways. And so, um, you know, you know some, some of them are about something specific like a murder or, or whatever. But a lot of these old songs are, are not really necessarily about anything in particular. 
or they don't need to be. And so I think they're they're made. You know what I think it shows me is that that they're made to just kind of for each performer to kind of put their own uh, you know experience into it. And I think that that again that's why they're around for hundreds of years. And you know, you know some of them will probably still be around 100 years from now people will be doing all sorts of different weird things with them i hope yeah um well thanks for coming <laughs> thank all, you for all this. um where thanks. can people find you get the record uh sign up for tour dates all the good stuff yeah well uh you can get all that information at my website michaeldaves.com uh d-a-v-e-s um you can get the uh, the vinyl and the uh cd through none such uh records website uh and you know amazon itunes all that stuff can't get the vinyl from iTunes. That's, that's I think, what we yeah, like about vinyl. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, but... <laughs> one trick. Um, well, we want to thank you for coming by. Thank you to Tracy and Josh from Kings County uh-huh. Imperial. Please come to the barbecue on Tuesday. Uh, shout out to Mom, Dad, Ornella, and the whole uh-huh. new Meatball Ace family. And, and yeah. uh, Bresnitz. Shout out to Meatball. Shout out to Ahana. Uh-huh. Shout out to the West Coast. Uh, okay. Hello, West Coast. Yeah, I gave up again for uh, Dominic Leslie on the mandolin, yeah. Jen Larson singing with me, and Larry Cook on bass. Uh, uh, great to get to work with these guys. Yeah, thank you for coming by. What are you going to take us out with? Darling Corey. Okay. Yeah. Uh, have a good rest of the week. Yeah, you too. Thank you.
Snacky Tunes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.